0: Hello and welcome to this GCP Short, produced in collaboration with We Are Guernsey and the Guernsey International Insurance Association, known as GIA, and really focusing on what ethical investing means for captives and how it can, and perhaps already is, being implemented. GEAR launched its ESG framework for insurers in May 2021 and joining us for this episode is Adele Gale, Deputy Chair of the Association and a Director at Robus Group, as well as Ian Corder, Director of Standards and Operations at ESI Monitor, which can provide a kite mark to validate insurers' participation. We are also joined by investment experts Jennifer Strachan, Sustainability and Business Development Manager at IAM, and Chadrat Kawaza, Executive Director at London and Capital. So Adele, we are one year on now from over one year on from the launch of Guernsey's ESG framework for insurers. What are your reflections on how it's been welcomed uh, in the sector and utilised within the jurisdictions uh, captive insurance sector?
1: thanks Richard we've been really impressed you know re- really pleased we've done a lot of training a lot of uh, roundtables a lot of discussions with industry we've set up a, a committee a subcommittee within gear specifically to assist insurance managers with the rollout we've developed templates board papers ESG policies that our captors can use so in the last year in terms of the association we've done a huge amount to support our sector to engage with the framework and to and to adopt it and we've been Really, really overwhelmed by the response. Um, every single insurance manager on the island has really engaged with us. Um, all of my clients, I'm pleased to say, have fully debated whether to adopt the framework or not, and all but one have done so. More widely within Robus, there's been lots of debate. A lot of a lot of captives have chosen to uh, take the principles on board and start to embed those ideas and concepts within their governance frameworks, but perhaps not make a public statement on it. Um, others are kind of considering adopting. You know, at the right time. And others have gone full hog and uh, and asked ESI Monitor to, to provide them with the kite mark and, and validate the work they've done internally to adhere to the framework. So I think it's proven it, that it was needed. And it's been very gratifying that the work has been appreciated by our clients in Guernsey and, um, and fully embraced. And we did really mean for it to be a handrail, so something that could assist those conversations in starting and and get people thinking about what they can actually do. And we're already starting to think about the future of the framework. You know, what, what does uh, version 2.0 look like and how can we develop, in particular, the investment pillar to um, to sort of start taking that forward and, and raising the bar a little bit?
0: Yeah, we'll come on to the future at the end of this discussion as well. When I, Just from an outsider's perspective, I think it's good to note that I certainly think that Guernsey's kind of statements on this and work on this in the last 18 months have definitely been noticed outside of the jurisdiction obviously I go to the states a lot I talk to domiciles there and there's definitely intrigue about what you've done here and people starting to kind of think about how they might do something similar or or, or whatever so I definitely think you've started a conversation in the the captive jurisdictional uh, area which is which is really valuable you mentioned ESI monitor there and we're really pleased to have Ian uh, on the podcast this time we've mentioned ESI monitor on the pod before Ian but this is the first time we're speaking to You. Can you explain then for us
2: a bit about what your role has been with regards to adoption of the framework for insurers? Yes, absolutely. So uh, ESI Monitor is uh, a Guernsey-based green tech company. Um, We built a solution that helps organisations become more sustainable by themselves. Um, It's called FutureTrack, and it gives the staff tools and support to uh, measure and manage their their company's footprints. So as a result, we've had a pretty central role, I think, in in Guernsey's sustainability ecosystem since we were founded back in 2019. Um, And we've always been strong supporters of GEAR, and since GEAR's ESG framework was produced, strong support of that, uh, we think it's, it's really great to see an initiative like the, the ESG framework produced and being taken up in a sector that Guernsey is really strong in. We've helped, I think practically um, in a couple of ways. We helped produce a validation protocol. So that's a really simple and understandable way so that insurers who want to be aligned to the framework can, can basically be tested to prove that they're compliant with it. We, we spent quite a lot of time working up those requirements with individual insurers who've been through the validation process. Um, so they want to know if they're up to scratch and, and we have sort of a, a supportive approach to that. So we test what they've got initially and give them feedback and then refine it to make sure it's, it's up to scratch. Um, and yeah, we've seen some really, really good uptake and, and good submissions um, that have come through and, uh, and really good public disclosures, which is part of pillar four.
0: Yeah, and, and, and probably not the kind of public disclosures you're talking about, but I mean, I've certainly seen since the framework was introduced, a number of, of captives or risk managers or, or board directors kind of mentioned that their captive has been through the process and, and some want to shout louder than others. And there's obviously varying reasons for that. The pillar three of the framework, Ian, covers responsible investing, which is the main topic of this discussion. As the author of the Mark validation criteria, could you explain what the current requirements um, around investments
2: are? So on pillar three, the current requirement is really quite, quite simple. It's for the insurer to place its capital in investments that are held or managed by a financial institution that itself has got a good or better ESG rating. So it's it's quite a flexible requirement that it allows the insurer quite a lot of discretion, um, because we, we recognise that the insurer's assets may need to be held in different ways. They might be tangible assets. They might need to hold working capital um, in order to pay claims. So so simply all they have to do is document in their investment guidelines how they are complying with Pillar Three, and ensure that those are being those processes are being followed. Um, and what we'd look to see in in a validation process is is really the evidence. Um, that the the capital has been placed in in those particular investments, um, that the institutions have a good or better rating. So we'd look to see probably something equivalent to an MSCI triple B or a Sustainalytics medium or average rating, or, or equivalent. Um, other other the Sg ratings can be used, and we'd look to see the evidence for that, and also we'd look to see that that has been public publicly disclosed under
0: pillar four as well. Fantastic. So let's get into then a bit more technical detail on the responsible investing and, and what it looks like. Jennifer, you work here on the island with multiple different institutions. So what does responsible investing to you look like in practice?
3: Thank you, Richard. it's a great topic and it's really something that's getting a lot more um, focus at the insurance level. For us, responsible and sustainable investing has two levels. First, it's just the big picture. It's important to think about why we're doing this and what really is going on. And that is where the asset owner and their investment managers seek to avoid ESG risks such as stranded assets, regulatory changes, declining industries. But also importantly, aim to participate in the phenomenal innovation that's happening in a wide range of sustainability areas, such as the energy transition, changing stakeholder demands. And we really talk about this as the non financial side of the, the performance of the portfolio. The second is the more detailed picture, where we see fund managers, such as London and Capital, investing in and really improving their own internal processes. It's been fantastic watching the, the numbers that they're devoting uh, in terms of people and capital to really creating those robust processes. And they're using the increasing data flow that are coming up from underlying companies and third party uh, data providers to really delve deep into those knowledge financial performances of the underlying companies. So things like their carbon footprint, their gender balance at the board level, um, on a range of other environmental and social metrics. And it's no surprise that data transparency is improving as this data comes through and as regulators push for more data collection, reporting and consistency. It's important also, I think, to, to look at it's not um, it's all different asset classes have got lots going on in them. It's not just equity. It's also fascinating fixed income instruments that are increasingly targeted to supporting social and environmental aims. And even if you don't have a, an active investment portfolio, captives really need to look at their banking providers. What are the policies of those banking providers? Are they lending to coal operators? Are they not? So. At all levels um, of the assets, there's something to have a look at. So my firm, an IAM Advisory, we sit between asset owners, um, so captives, uh, and those fund managers. And we really try to make sure that we can structure a portfolio that addresses the aims of the captive board um, in terms of what their goals are for their, their policies.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. So, Shadrach, we've we've had you on the podcast before discussing a bit about ESG more broadly. So, on this kind of responsible investing
4: side, kind of what what does it mean to you? It's interesting, and I think a key word that um, Jennifer mentioned is risk. So, the way we would look at it, and there were a lot of asset managers are looking at it, is ESG is a risk, an investment risk uh, that should be considered alongside other investment factors um, when we're developing, when we're putting together a portfolio. So what does that mean in practice? So it means that different captives will have different risk appetites, different board board members at different levels of understanding. And all these factors have to be taken into consideration when you're actually building an, an ESG or responsible investing portfolio. And this we found is some of the challenge and the challenge that a lot of captive owners and um, insurance managers have come across. How, how, what, how does one build an ESG portfolio that reflects the idiosyncrasies of a particular captive um, vehicle, um, I'll, I'll give I'll give you a quick example of two conversations that we've had with captives. So, with with one captive, they've, they they had a very short time horizon, short investment horizon. They had a board that was actively learning about sort of ESG and, and trying to understand it. And for them, in in their view, good good ESG, good responsible investing was from a carbon emissions perspective avoiding the large energy producers. Whereas we had a very similar conversation with a much larger captive with a much longer time horizon. And for them, what they would class as good responsible investing was engaging with the large energy energy producers and helping them understand the transition risk and moving them along that journey. And so if, if one looked at those two examples, they, they appear contradictory. But from the captive's perspective, from the individual capitalist perspective, it, it made sense to them in terms of their responsible investing and, and what, what it means for them. Um, so, so I guess in summary what we would say certainly as London capital is that responsible investing in practice depends. Hmm. It does depend on the objectives of the, of the captive, where they are in their in the sort of responsible investing journey and what it is they are trying to get out of. A responsible investing, but it's interesting
0: in of itself that you're even having those conversations. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes this ESG movement or what does ESG mean to captives can be looked upon quite cynically. Is it, is that if are people actually talking about it? Well, it sounds like people are actually talking about it and trying to understand and trying to define what a strategy might look like for
4: them. Yes, and and you know over over the last sort of twenty four months, we've had a lot more discussions on responsible investing than I think we've ever had, and a lot of it is being driven by initiatives such as what, what Gear has done just bringing sort of responsible investing to the forefront, helping people think about it not as a tick box exercise, but as Jennifer put it, a risk management tool. So we're in an evolving world, things are changing, and captives and insurers in general really need to consider what does this mean for us um, as an investor and and as a financial institution, and how do these risks play out, and what can we do to position ourselves in in sort of a favourable way? Uh, Jennifer, so what what kind of conversations are you hearing on Ireland from from
0: your clients on this topic of responsible investing? are they starting to think about it as a kind of defined strategy?
3: Well, in addition to working for IAM Advisory, I also sit on a captive board, and what's interesting for us is it's very easy to get bogged down in the day to day work, and by the time you get to the asset or investment piece, you don't have much time left, and people are focused on the actual underlying business of the captive, but. Because, I think, driven by the GFSC here, there's a regulatory requirement now for captive boards to consider climate impacts within the captive. Those conversations are starting where we all sort of look at each other and say, ooh, Let's, let's think about this. And now we're starting to see, not only are we looking at what we're insuring, but we're also then building into that conversation. Oh gosh, we have this portfolio or oh, we have um, these, these, uh, these deposits with this bank. Now let's go through and look through. So I think that look through process is starting. But where I'd like to see it go further, and this is something I'm trying to push on the captive just to reference, and that is that we're not getting clarity from the parent mm-hmm what the captive should be doing, because we know the parent has a net zero commitment for 2050, but we've got no flow through through the insurance team as to what, and in this case, this captive does have an investment uh, um, portfolio, how indeed we can um, support that effort. So that's something that uh, we're trying to put in place. The interesting piece also is that where does that sit within those communication lines. And you would have thought a net zero commitment that it had been made, now this is running two years, that would have flowed down. Mm-hmm. And it does then make you question the parent how are they actually getting this? Because if it's not coming through the insurance department, you know, where are the lines coming down in terms of that information? But I think that will happen um, because we're now pushing from the bottom saying, we want that clarity. And no doubt other departments are, having, are doing the same thing. But in the absence of clarity from the parent, we are um, working with the investment manager to make sure that it, an ESG lens is applied to the portfolio. And that's great because the investment manager actually has got a really good uh, system in place and they're reporting back to us. So we will report that up and it will almost be the irony of us pushing the data up rather than having it come down from the parent. Um, But I think there's certainly more scope, particularly on banking side and fixed income side to include green and social and sustainability bonds. Um, Sometimes these um, can be really interesting and very impactful. And there's not really a huge financial uh, trade-off there. Indeed, I would say the investment portfolios, um, if they're actively managed with an ESG lens um, are doing very, very well. So, and I think also it's important to look long-term. Well, I think there was some pushback earlier this year. Energy shares were up um, that were that non-ESG type. This is a long-term game and there's no doubt that this is the direction of travel. I did have one uh, captive manager say to me, oh, we had a, a session at a conference on ESG investing. Is that is that really gonna continue? And I looked at him and I said, this is the new way. This really is, if you understand the big, huge things that are going to be changing, this absolutely is the way and will be the way 100% going forward.
4: I think I'd like to add, add one point. I think one of the things that we found is, has been a stumbling block when we're having those initial conversations with, with captive um, owners, captive managers and uncaptive boards has been, what's, what's the implication for us from an investment perspective? Yeah. So a lot of the conversation has been, you know, we understand um, ESG is good. We understand we need to do more about this. But what does that mean in practice? You know, how will that impact our investment risk uh, and our investment return? And I think a lot of the onus is on the asset management industry to help help boards articulate some of that and understand the implications and the practical um, nuances of, of adopting a, a particular responsible investing strategy. Certainly, we feel from, from London and Capital's perspective that once once boards have moved to a position where there's, there's just a lot clearer understanding of what the implications are and how exactly to articulate an, an ESG strategy, it's easier to take it up. It's easier to sort of align that with Guidelines such as such as what Gears Gears put together, and, and it's easier to report on it because there's a deep understanding of of what it means in general. So uh,
0: Adele Jennifer actually touched on there quite an interesting case in terms of the captive looking for some kind of steer maybe from the parents, or in terms of what their own ESG goals or their net zero goals then should mean for the captive, and that's obviously a challenge. To make sure that you're kind of aligned if if you want to be what are some of the challenges uh captives face in this topic that that you see specifically is it still the case we often hear that the majority of assets of captives end up just being given back to treasury as as a loan back for them to to manage anyway what are you seeing as some of the pushback or, or challenges
1: I think there are regulatory capital challenges for parental loan backs. So I think they are used in some cases, but for particularly unrated parent entities, we are seeing the portfolio, the asset portfolio staying within the captives. So there is a kind of some uh, examples where there's limited um, amounts of action the actual captive board can take. But you know as jennifer said there are cash products there are fixed income securities it, it doesn't have to be an equities portfolio and, and as Shadrach mentioned you know you don't have to be kind of lobbying uh, through through your asset manager and your fund managers for energy transition within the the shells and exons and sheds of this world you you can actually hold esg compliant as the captive defines it, um, investments, it's really about choice of provider. Who is advising you as a board? Who um, do you have employed to actually look after your money? Are they reporting on what you're interested in? Have you made the um, the the requests of your of your group? Do, do they know what they want you to be investing in? And are you getting that instruction coming down? Um, so I think we're at the start of the journey. I can't see that we'll be in this position in two years' time. We know that TCFD disclosures, SFDR disclosures, all sorts of um, of other kind of international standards are coming, and parent entities are going to need to uh, make transparent and sort of subsequent annual disclosures on these topics and the captive will have to be included in those to some extent so we're sort of starting the conversation early and i think that guernsey's got a bit of a head start but everybody is going to have to be looking at these types of issues in the very very near and immediate future and um, it's incumbent on all of us i think as as captive directors and as insurance managers to be having the conversations and starting starting the debate early so that we're prepared when it does come
0: you mentioned the future there. I mean, Ian, obviously this is an area that you're uh, particularly concentrated on with, with ESI Monitor. What direction do you think this, this broad topic of kind of responsible investing and, and ESG-aware organisations, in what direction is that going? Do you only see a, a bigger role for, for organisations such as
2: yourselves? Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly see a bigger role. I think we see, by by and large, positive movement. So people who two, three years ago... Didn't know what any of the acronyms stood for, and now making the effort to at least ask the question. Equally, we you, you do see a degree of entrenchment where, going back to some of those some of those oil and gas companies, or even you know political movements that realise that they are now more likely to be one of the losers rather than the winners from the energy transition, are are making it increasingly hard to do that. So that you know that's not not to be that's not unexpected. Really, um, it's been. It's been predicted for a number of years that there will be winners and losers from the energy transition, and that that will be a painful process for some for some organisations who, who whose business model is fun- fundamentally unaligned with uh, with the low carbon economy. Of course, there is still the opportunity for many more organisations than not to take positive actions to align themselves with with, with with the low-carbon future. And I think that's not only where the smart money is, that's where most people's minds are going. So by and large, yeah, you know, the direction of travel is um, people are making the effort to understand and put the right capabilities and capacities within their teams or bring in independent advisors or contractors who can help them um, achieve what they need to do.
0: I mean, ESG is is I think still a grey area in some ways in terms, of, particularly on the S side of, of of ESG. We've we've talked a bit more about kind of energy transition today, but you know, one person's noble cause is someone else's kind of thing they're dead set against, and like, like that entrenchment you mentioned, Ian. Um, and ESG, I think, as you said, Chadrack, it is a risky it is a risky business um, in terms of getting it right. But I guess it is just about. The future is companies understanding what it means to them, while obviously keeping an eye on whatever regulators are saying or whatever disclosures are needed. Um, I, I recorded a Directors and Officers uh, podcast regularly, and ESG comes up all the time as just a huge litigation risk.
4: Yeah, um, it's interesting only because with ESG, and specifically thinking about more the future of ESG, I think there's a few things that need to happen. Obviously, some of this stuff has happened in terms of regulation, suddenly uh, guidelines to help companies and captives sort of get in line um, with ESG principles. I think the second thing that really needs to happen to to sort of move things forward is And Jennifer and Adela both alluded to this is more securities being available, more type of instruments where companies can show up their ESG credentials, you know, participate in ESG in a way that reflects their views. But I think for me, certainly, one of the key things that I don't think is happening that much that needs to happen more is I think there needs to be more forward-looking measures. And this ties into what we're talking about in terms of, more focus on the S, yes, more focus on the E rather than the S. Yes. Part of it is because with the E, it's easy to look backwards and say, you know, this company has done such and such and such, and so is, is bad. Whereas I don't think there's a lot being done in terms of forward-looking measures. You know, you, you may have been bad in the past, but what are you doing now? How are you invested now? What type of initiatives do you have in, in your firm in your company that will make you one of the future leaders of ESG? So, and and you, you know, with, with even the big energy and I know we go back to this, a lot of them can see their writing on the wall, you know they're investing in clean energy they're, they're making some movements in the right direction. You know, we found with um, some companies that have been been involved in controversy, some of them have now you know, overhauled their boards and now looking like some of the real future winners of, of ESG and and I think a lot of that needs to be sort of fitted into the whole discussion, you know how can we adopt some forward looking measures and not base our whole ESG discussion on necessary Necessarily on what people have done in the past.
0: Adele, you mentioned at the very beginning about maybe ESG framework 2.0. Is that something that Gears is starting to think about and talk about in terms of updating? You said a year ago that it was going to be a living framework and it will probably change over time.
1: Absolutely, um, and we have started those conversations and um, we've been working with Jennifer and as well as uh, Shadrach on, on their kind of um, take on our Pillar 3 in particular and how we could perhaps evolve that to sort of set the bar a little bit higher. I think it's really important that we take our gear members and and those that are using the framework as a as a sort of handrail for their discussions internally, take them along with us on the journey. So it's it's going to be a constantly iterative process, and the the framework will be hopefully uh, something we update on an annual or, or biannual basis, as as education changes, as the demands on the captive changes, as 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 like you say, as these sorts of ideas kind of crystallise, and and everybody has a kind of clearer picture of what ESG means to them, and and what it should mean to their captive
0: so it's not a case of we've done this ski have done this now and we'll let people get on with it it's your kind of watcher space i guess
1: absolutely